Hello, folks, and uh, welcome to the Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon, your host. Uh, we're broadcasting live from the uh, cultural and culinary crossroads of America, and that will mean more to you when I introduce our first guest. We've got quite a lineup for you here today, including uh, State Senator Rob Hogue joining us later to talk about the energy efficiency bill and maybe some of the other significant damage done at the State House this year. We'll also talk with uh, Randy Evans of the Iowa Freedom of Information to Council, uh, specifically about the dust-up between uh, Kim Reynolds and anybody who wants to really know what happened between the governor and the head of the Iowa Finance Authority. We've got a few other things on the docket, but first I want to welcome Zach Manheimer to the program. Uh, Zach is the uh, principal community planner for uh, McClure Engineering, also the founder of the Des Moines Social Club, which is how I got to know him, and he proposed a, a thoughtful uh, concept in the uh, Des Moines Register recently, suggesting that maybe some of these small Iowa towns could follow in the footsteps of Soho. That would be Manhattan south of Houston District. Zach, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ed. Good to talk to you. Yeah. So anyway, um, how, uh, how plausible is it to convince Iowans that we ought to do anything at all that makes us any more like New York City? Plausible? Not very. Uh, <laughs> but uh, necessary, I would say it, it has to happen. And why is that? Uh, in, in rural, rural Iowa, rural America in general has suffered. That's not, no news to anybody. Uh, major population losses over the last 30, 40 years. Um, we, I, I don't feel like we're really addressing the problem. We're using the old economic model of trying to incentivize companies to move to communities to create as many jobs as possible. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes the way it's done uh, could be detrimental. But we uh, And we've it, certainly done a lot of it. We have. Uh, Iowa's done a ton of it, yes, I mean, yeah. and uh, various levels of success. Um, I, I would argue very little success, but uh, that's another conversation. <laughs> that is another, yes. I, 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 I don't know if I disagree with that. Um, but the our theory is instead of incentivizing companies, why are we not incentivizing people? Yeah. All these trends have shown that companies will move to communities based on if the talent is there. So if we can attract the talent, that will help the companies come. So jobs are not necessarily the problem. It's a lack of a culture that yeah, might be the problem. Yeah, talent and, uh, and uh, you know, what do I want to say, uh, uh, opportunities, recreational opportunities, cultural opportunities, uh, you know, uh, it just, just the kind of things that make a place a nice place to live. Exactly. Yeah, and so how does how do uh, how do we take that vision, which seems to be gaining some traction in the larger metropolitan areas? But what about small towns? Well, small towns tend to have a lot. The, the, the they stand to gain a ton of the population that are going to get pushed pushed out of the metro areas over the next twenty years. And the three worlds that are always pushed out first are artists, uh, entrepreneurs, and immigrants. And those tend to be the t same types of people that help make communities unique. And the big question mark is, will these communities welcome those folks into their towns? First of all, are they even going to want to go there because are they, do they have the right housing and cultural opportunities they're looking for? And secondly, are those communities going to be welcoming? That's what we have to look at. Now, I have argued that because of climate change and the inevitable loss of South Florida and displacement of millions of people – and of the probable uh, loss of uh, habitability of the uh, Southwest, there are going to be millions of people. I mean, again, not just South Florida, but look at all of it down the East Coast. There are communities that are probably going to be underwater. 
and probably not all that far in the future. And this is not crazy talk. This is scientifically that, that that's the that's the science is saying that. Where are they going to move? Well, I mean, one one place that looks pretty attractive right now is the Upper Midwest, where we've got plenty of water, great soil, um, uh, you know, a safe distance from any uh, any coastal flooding. Uh, so it seems like the uh, the rush of people is going to happen. The question is when and and really how 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 well prepared are you, are you going to be for it? And I think that's kind of where your where your um, perspective is very very helpful. How do we make sure we've got the housing, where we've got the infrastructure, where we've got an attitude that is going to be welcoming of this new blood with these new ideas? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think the case in point, we can look to our neighbor to the north in, in Minnesota. Uh, they've, in my opinion, been much more welcoming to different types of people, different cultures over the last 20 years. And we've seen that state uh, blossom in terms of their insane population growth and economic development. And I think we could take a page from what they've done over the years and, and learn from them. It's hard for Iowans to want to do anything that Minnesota has done. I mean, we just uh, – it's a state pride thing. You know, we make lots of jokes better, about it. Better than Nebraska. <laughs> well, maybe, yes. So um, all teasing aside, uh, what, what has uh, – what, what is different about Minnesota that they've been able to grasp this concept and apply it? I think – well, they did something really unique uh, about 30-some years ago. They passed a, a thing called the Legacy Amendment, and somehow they were able to get folks on the uh, – pro-gun side and folks on the arts and culture side and folks on the uh, environmental conservation side, all those three worlds, together into one bill, and they passed a, uh, a statewide tax to raise dollars to help all three of those worlds. Mm -hmm. That has blossomed over the last 30 years. It's made uh, Minnesota the number one state for arts funding. Uh, in the country, as an example, and it's really helped pull these two distinct sides of people politically into a central playing ground. And that's something I think we miss in Iowa. And do we see that happening elsewhere in the country? Um, there's some other examples of it. I think Minnesota is probably the best one. Uh, I would say they've done it in California. Uh, but in terms of the Midwest, um, not, not so much. All right, so time to uh, maybe provide some additional leadership. So here's here's one problem. Our, in, in Des Moines, we have the East Village, which was a dive of a neighborhood for a long time. Uh, entrepreneurial types, artistic types came in and made it a, an interesting place, and renovation began, and it's turned into a magnet. Uh, so much so that you have you know even some chain businesses moving in some really upscale stuff moving in, and that's making it tough for the artistic types, the people who actually made it, you know, made it, uh, you know, made it happen. That's making it tough for them to stay. Yes, I think it's a microcosm of, uh, you know, borrowing another uh, term from New York. Um, it, it, is, it is the same thing that happened in Soho, just way faster. Yeah. And that's the way things are moving right now. That is that I, I, w I believe that by 2030, Des Moines, the Des Moines Metro will be oversaturated. And possibly sooner, and that's that's a hard thing to 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 think about. Oversaturated with uh, where where people are getting displaced on a much uh, okay. higher level than they are today. My my definition of oversaturation for a work from a workforce and cultural standpoint is: can you be twenty five and find an affordable apartment in downtown? Right, and so that's another argument as to why uh, you know focusing on small town redevelopment is so important. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, these are, to me, rural America and rural Iowa specifically uh, is the next frontier. It is what it was 150 years ago. We're, we're there again. Yeah. It is uh, the, the next place to pioneer if you have a new idea. Yeah, and again, a lot, a lot of these, uh, a lot of the storefronts that are available, the housing, the vacant lots even that are available are very affordable. Uh, absolutely. Extremely affordable, yeah. especially when you compare it to the metro. So what policies, I mean, I mean, I know we have the example from Minnesota to look at, but are there other policy changes you would suggest that Iowa and other, you know, predominantly rural states should consider to try to move this concept forward? I think it's all about our, our leadership at a local level. Uh, and, I, and when I say local, I mean, you know, obviously city, but also county. I think the best opportunity we have in Iowa are for our county supervisors understanding the, the trends that are happening and acting on it. The, many of these communities, the towns or the villages, or, uh, they don't have the money to do anything about this. Um, they're, they're struggling. The counties do. The average county valuation in Iowa is about a billion dollars, and most of them have very little to no debt. Now, they are concerned with adding any debt, and they don't want to do it, and they're very conservative that way. But if they begin to change just a little, and this is something we talk to tons of county supervisors about all the time, they have the power to reimagine their communities and, and the pocketbook to do it. The question is, will they act? Right. Now, you know, one, one problem that Iowa has, and other, other places have this as well, but I think we have it uh, maybe to a more severe degree. We have a problem called uh, Congressman Steve King, uh, who, Steve, who keeps getting reelected uh, despite saying uh, things that are almost as bizarre as some of the things that Donald Trump tweets uh, and, and, and is divisive. And, uh, you know, Steve King's vision of rural Iowa, and again, his district is about one-third of the state, almost, his, his vision of rural Iowa is not is not what you're talking about. It's not bringing in new people. It's not becoming more artistically, you know, motivated, more culturally uh, diverse. That's the opposite. How do you how do you how do you come up against that wall? If I can use another uh, ref, another reference, <laughs> and and how do you, how do you break through that wall so you can get people like Steve King and the folks who support him to see the wisdom of what you're suggesting? I, I think, uh, first of all, we do a lot of work in, in his region, and I, I don't see uh, tons of people subscribing to his thoughts. I, I do see some, absolutely, uh, but I met many people in, in, in his uh, region that do not agree with the way he views the world. Um, but on top of that, I think a lot of this is a, genera- a generational shift, mm-hmm. and that's unfortunate because that it's not uh, speedy. But I do see the next generation as they're beginning to assume these leadership roles in these communities. Things are beginning to shift. I don't think it's going to be that way forever in northwest Iowa. Uh, and so I, I wish it would happen faster. But some of that's going to have to be generational. Yeah. It was saying you wish it was going to happen faster might be a little insensitive. Uh, but not. I know we, I know you didn't intend it that way. But, no, 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 but not, I, not in that regard. More of that, right. I, I want to see sure. if they want their economies to grow, they need to yeah. begin to reconsider how they're running the show. Yeah. And I've spent a lot of time in small-town Iowa as well. And, uh, you know, in the, in the town of Searsboro last year, uh, we, we camped. A group of us, the uh, Climate Justice Unity March, camped on Main Street uh, because there were so many buildings that had been removed. There was a nice green, vo- you know, grassy lot there where we could pitch our tents. Uh, 
And so, you know, you've got that challenge. And then you know, we, we met the – I mean, we had a better turnout from folks in that town than any other town we went through. I'd say about 15 percent of the population turned out. In Des Moines, that would be tens of thousands. So we had a great conversation. The mayor stuck around to sing, sing music, sing songs with us, uh, and expressed a lot of interest in seeing innovative ideas. Uh, you know, I, I tried. You know, tried to do things that would – Get the uh, get the uh, the city into um, you know into more energy self sufficiency, so they weren't relying on the power grid, um, and interest in, in 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 stuff probably like what you're talking about as well. I I think there are even it's really small town. I mean, that's a town of 150 people. I think even some of those really small towns might might uh, you know might be able to perk an ear and and find some interest in what you're talking about. I think they can. I, I think you know to me, population does not it does not matter. Population is not the thing that's going to put a one community in a better position than than another. Uh, also, money is not the problem in these communities or any communities. The money can always be found if the idea is solid. Right. The problem is leadership. Yeah. We need to have the right leaders in place, both at an elected level, both at a corporate level, both from a uh, community-wide level and an artistic level. Yeah. They all need to work together. We've seen that success in Des Moines over the last decade. And the question is, where else are we going to be able to see it around yeah. the state? Well, great stuff, Zach. Uh, folks, we've been talking with Zach Manheimer. Uh, if folks want to get in touch with you, Zach, and uh, you know, get some, get more feedback, information, ideas, uh, where do they go? Uh, we've got uh, mecplacemaking.com is our website. Uh, hit us up there. I do work for an engineering company. I am not an engineer, so please don't ask me any engineering questions. <laughs> um, but uh, we, we, uh, all of our information can be found there, and we'd love to talk to you. Okay, that's M as in Mary, E-C planning. Uh, E-C placemaking. Placemaking, sorry, placemaking. M-E-C placemaking. Great. Yes. All right. Hey, thanks, Zach, for joining us, folks. So we've been talking with Zach Manheimer, the uh, principal community planner for McClure Engineering, also the founder of the Des Moines Social Club, a remarkably successful initiative that has helped transform Des Moines and made it the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. All right. So uh, like many other states around the country, the Iowa legislature just wrapped up. Some are still wrapping up. And uh, like many other states around the country, the composition of the Iowa legislature is about as about as far right as it ever has been, and uh, that's um, that's producing some legislation that has turned a lot of heads, uh, including um, including the so-called fetal heartbeat bill, which or ban, which um, is now makes Iowa ha- Iowa has now the the uh, most extreme abortion law in the country. We might get a chance to talk about that. I want to focus with Rob Hogue on the energy efficiency bill. Uh, Rob, are you with us? I am, Ed. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. So uh, you are probably trying to catch up on sleep. Well, we're uh, back in Cedar Rapids, and uh, now, you know, we do that quick 180 from the legislative session. Now we're fully engaged in uh, campaign. Right. Because... after all the damage that was done, we've we've got to we got to really focus on those campaigns. But I'm happy to be with you this morning, Ed, to talk yeah, well, about this bill. Well, thank you. Yeah, and uh, again, the energy efficiency bill was supported by the big power companies, uh, but opposed by most everybody else. <laughs> so, uh, but it passed, and the governor signed it. What does it do? Well, um, Ed, it does a it does a number of things uh, that. Um, take away or reduce the Iowa Utilities Board regulatory authority, uh, but the, really the, the signature bad thing in the legislation is it puts an arbitrary cap on how much utilities can be required to spend on energy efficiency. 
Um, and what it will do is it will take away under current the current rates of expenditure. The utilities board has found that our uh, utilities should be spending somewhere between four and eight percent of their our revenue on energy efficiency because it is the lowest cost way of meeting energy demand. Right. And the legislature has just arbitrarily uh, capped that at 2%. That 2% cap takes effect January 1st, 2019. So all of the utilities will now immediately begin rewriting their energy efficiency plans and dramatically reducing their investment in energy efficiency. It works out to over $100 million wow. less that will be an invest in energy efficiency. And, and from, a climate, from a climate point of view, this is going to require more, uh, more generation. Again, you can only do so much with windmills, and windmills are creating more and more challenges and problems themselves. But the, um, I mean, this, this could mean that Mid-American or Alliance might be back and asking for another coal-fired power plant or another nuclear power plant. Correct. Well, it, it it could, and I certainly hope it doesn't go that route, or even just more uh, natural gas plants. Sure, right. Uh, which, which, as you and I both know, is is not uh, good. Um, the methane and, problem. Uh, yeah. yeah, we're we're very concerned about um, what this does uh, because it will it will undermine long term energy savings. Um, it will lead to construction of more uh, generation and distribution, and that's very costly. That's why this, that's why this is not pro-consumer legislation, because energy efficiency is the lowest cost option right. for meeting energy demand. And so this will lead to higher rates. The, the you know, utilities board had found that more energy efficiency made sense. The consumer advocate confirmed for us that this bill will lead to higher rates. Uh, you know, even the utilities in their reports have acknowledged that by investing in energy efficiency, they save consumers more money than they spend. Um, and, of course, we have the Iowa Energy Plan that now Governor Reynolds had authored, and in that uh, they had said that energy efficiency was one of the four foundational pillars, and she's now turned her back on that. How do you explain that, 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 that turnaround? Uh, well, uh you know, I, I've been trying to figure that out because I, I thought we had a shot that she might even veto it as late as last Friday. Um, I thought we had it stopped in the House of Representatives by picking off some of the, yeah. um, you know, less uh, less uh, conservative Republicans in the in the House, and unfortunately, they cobbled together 52 votes in the House, and Reynolds yeah. signed it. Yeah, uh, this is a ma- this is a major step backwards. Iowa has long been a leader. With a bipartisan support for uh, clean energy solutions. Yeah, didn't Governor Branstad didn't didn't Governor Branstad sign the original uh, bill that, uh, that that launched this program? Right. He he did sign it, and you know we had had. I mean, look, Democrats were better on clean energy than Republicans, but uh, you know Republicans hadn't attacked clean energy, and now they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, this bill also. Um, starts us down a, a bad path with solar power by allowing uh, municipal utilities to discriminate against solar power. How so? Uh, there were, well, um, the, uh, the law that says they can't discriminate in rates uh, against um, customers is true, but they'll now be allowed to um, uh, charge uh, hookup fees that are unreasonable. Um, if they want, right? It doesn't right. mean the, utility, the municipal utilities have to, and hopefully citizens will keep organized. 
but it does allow those utilities now to charge discriminatory connection fees and, and other terms of service, right. uh, which really takes a, a step in the wrong direction. I mean, there was originally a proposal to have the rural electric co-ops do that as well, and that was taken out of the legislation. Well, and that was largely taken out because uh, more and more hog confinements are putting solar panels on the roofs uh, of those buildings, right? Right. The, the pork <laughs> producers were opposed to that, right. and, and that was one of the things that took that provision out. Yeah. But but here here's what we really need, uh, Ed. We just really need citizens to get more engaged than ever before, because as you know so well, this is not just a fight for our economy and and you know good governance. This is a fight for the future of uh, the sustainability of our planet and the yeah. welfare of future generations of humans, and, and yeah. including this generation. Right. So uh, we need a, we need an all out effort to. Uh, really defeat those people who put uh, the narrow utility interests ahead of the common interests uh, and and get this thing turned around. I, I mean, one of the things that was shocking to me, Ed, was the utilities board has been under the control of Republican appointees for the last six years, the last seven years. Mm-hmm. And right. uh, the idea that Republican legislators couldn't accept the fact that they had found energy efficiency was the lowest cost way to meet our energy demand, not even considering the environmental benefits. This right. is just, just lowest just, economic yeah. cost. Right. Uh, really disappointed me. And, I, you know, I'm obviously really disappointed that our utilities would have spent so much political capital on this. And and I think that should be a long-term problem for them, that right. they that they weighed in like this. And, I mean, you know, I... I think uh, citizens, let's fight back, conserve, uh, uh, take their take their utility profits away. Um, let's uh, you know, let's you know. It, it helps when you have good public policy, but there's yeah. something we can't do as citizens uh, working together, not just in terms of winning elections, but also in terms of. Um, creating the new vision like your prior guest was talking about. So, Rob, it, again, it isn't just energy efficiency where the Iowa legislature fell down this year, but on, on choice, on the budget. Any other highlights that you'd want to uh, bring to our audience's attention? Sure. Well, just really quick. Obviously, on the abortion ban bill, uh, that gives Iowa a real black eye. And the immediate reaction we're now getting from especially young women across the country who said that Iowa is no longer part of their future. Uh, and, and we've gotten multiple reports of people um, reacting that way. It's it's really too bad, and I think it creates a very difficult situation now for recruiting, uh, recruiting uh, physicians in our state. Um, I uh, that that was obviously bad, and, and and people are rightly upset about that. Yeah, I mean the courts hopefully will put a stop to it, but that well you can't rely on that forever. No, um, and, 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 and they and, want to. You know, I listened to Steve King on on uh, WHO Radio. That's We Hate Others Radio. The uh, <laughs> and, and as far as he's concerned, and and the show's host and some others, this is just a step toward a complete. Uh, complete negation of a woman's right to make that choice. Yep, and, and so we've got to, we got to, we we've got to, you know, fight back there. Uh, and then this tax bill uh, that they passed on Saturday, uh, without going through a regular legislative process. Right. Um, I'll tell you what, just to cut it all away, you know, to cut it down to the bare essence, it is a huge giveaway for millionaires at the expense of everyone else. The 2,600 Iowans who have million-dollar incomes 
not millionaires. These are people, million-dollar incomes. Right. We'll see an average state tax cut of $18,773 next year. And meanwhile, you know, if they're throwing out, um, you know, small income tax cuts to other people, but we're going to see higher sales tax on taxis and uh, subscription services like Netflix. Uh, plus, we're going to see another round of budget cuts that does real harm to ordinary uh, working Iowans who want to be able to send their kids, you know, want a good education, uh, want to be able to send their kids to community college or one of our universities. Um, the whole public safety um, uh, safety net, uh, pu- public safety issues like corrections. Right. I mean, these are bad well, and, cuts. And a big part of it and, is a question of fairness. I mean, uh, the, the the analysis I've looked at says that Iowans who are in uh, 60000 a year or less, you know, they're going to get a, a savings, but it'll be a total – it'll be 13 percent of the total tax cut, whereas the folks earning over a quarter of a million, you know – uh, uh, and that'll be what forty six percent of the total cut will go to them. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah know? Those, those numbers are accurate for yeah. twenty nineteen, and it actually gets worse. And then someday they say, well, maybe we'll get a little bit better. But even even under their model, uh, you know, they're when they were touting this thing in the long run, boy, that's going to be great. Even under that million million dollar incomes, we're still getting eighteen thousand dollar a year tax cuts, and and lower incomes, we're starting to get. Oh, over a couple hundred bucks, but that's not a good trade-off. So right? uh, you know, um, you know, it is really unfair, and people should be upset and angry about the massive tax cuts for millionaires. So my my theory is this, Rob: is that uh, Republicans have done so many things that are so out of sync with where most people are at that they're preparing to lose the election in this fall. And but they decided, you know, we're going to lose. You know, it's already bad enough being an off-year, you know, off-year election with the uh, Republican president in the White House and this this president in particular. They're thinking it's already a bad year. What the heck? We're just going to go for it and do as much as we can, and you know, damn the torpedoes. And so, I mean, I don't know because I don't know how you run on these things. I don't know how you run on a tax bill that's so punitive, an abortion law that's the worst in the country, you know, gutting of energy efficiency programs and the loss of potentially 20,000 jobs from that. I don't know how you run on that. Even against, and I'm going to make a critical comment about Democrats here, even against a party as anemic as the Democratic Party. I don't know how you run on that and win. So maybe they've just said, okay, we're going to lose. Let's do as much damage as possible. Well, that's that's one theory out there. Uh, The other theory is they believe by doing so much for the special interest, they'll get so much campaign contributions that they'll be able to fool enough Iowans uh, into thinking that um, what they've done is not so bad. So watch that. I mean, that's why we need citizens engaged. Um, And then, uh, you know, I will tell you, the other thing they may be banking on is they can at least hold on to some of this. Right, right. right. And, and they did do some other things. Watch. One of the things I'm very concerned about, it was a terrible bill in April that they did, uh, anti-immigrant legislation uh, to require local governments to um, basically violate constitutional rights to help with the enforcement of federal immigration laws. But, but watch them demonize immigrants. And uh, that's right. something that's also really sad for our state if they do right. that. Right, right, and, and Iowans cannot let that stand. And the other, the other thing they did that won't help them in the election is is the uh, bill that uh, that uh, legitimized the Dakota Access Pipeline as critical infrastructure. You know, it, well, 
again, uh, Ed, that's back with a situation where the special interests may like that enough that give them enough money and allow people to confuse the public on that. Right. So, yeah. so and, the, and, work, that, and the work that you've done and, and we're all doing, we've got yeah. to make sure uh, people know that we, do, we don't want to live in a state where you can uh, get turned into a Class B felon for, uh, you know, uh, simple uh, protest. Right. And I think that's uh-huh. that, that to me is the less significant component of that bill. The biggest problem was that it defines um, defines um, pipelines, gas oil pipelines, just merely transporting the product through the state as critical. And this is happening all over all over the country. In fact, it's an ALEC model. The, the bill is basically introduced by the American Legislative Exchange Council. And we're seeing it in Pennsylvania and Ohio and other places. And, um, yeah, it's but, – but, you know, the, the political side of that is if people are aware that that happened and what that means in the long run, that could have some political fallout as well. Well, and I, I hope you're right. Uh, and, and, Ed, I, I tie it to this. I mean, it's the hypocrisy of the Republicans who uh, have always said that they want to protect private uh, property owners' rights, but when it came to the, when it came to the oil pipeline, they – they just not only did they stand by silently, they actively right. supported that. Right, and, and in all fairness, there were some Democrats who voted for that bill as well. But oh, oh uh, there, there, there's there's no question there are some Democrats. But I, I will tell you that it's it's to me it's the hypocrisy of the Republicans on that issue. Right, because that they should bother yeah, people. Yeah, uh, yeah, because you know I was there. Uh, I I mean I've always been up front. I I uh, have been favorable towards the. More favorable towards the use of eminent domain when it's a renewable energy project because the climate crisis is so serious, and and yet uh, when we tried to get them to treat at least the fossil fuel projects to the same extent that they were going to treat the renewable energy projects, we couldn't even get Republicans to do that. They they went out of their way to attack eminent domain for renewable energy projects, but just uh, you know. Katie bar the door. Right. Anything goes for fossil fuel yeah. companies. Yeah, and, well, and this is back. This is back where Iowans need to exercise our economic power as well as our political power to stop uh, our democracy from being bought by the fossil fuel interests. I yep. hope uh, I hope listeners will really get engaged over the next six months. We're six months under six months to election day. Yet. Right. And I got you. And, I, and again, Republicans have been more bought off than Democrats, but there are Democrats who've also taken the soiled money and and have been on the wrong side of the pipeline and climate debate because of that, too. So I hope people will hold both parties accountable. But again, there is a distinction on that issue. And there's a whole range of other issues that should start getting people scratching their heads saying, hmm, what am I going to do this election? Maybe yeah. not what I normally do. So and, and don't and add just really quick in the time we have left. Iowa should not affect, not forget the attack on workers that Republicans engaged in over the last two yeah, years. Sure, very good point. Because that has been ugly too. And you combine all those issues, and it seems to me we can have the biggest political comeback here because people have seen what Republicans have to offer now, yeah. and it is not good for Iowa. Well, Rob, thanks for joining us, uh, folks. We've been talking with State Senator Rob Hogue from Cedar Rapids, uh, recovering after a grueling session. Rob, uh, hope things go well for you in the interim. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. When we come back, folks, uh, Randy Evers is going to join us. We're doing, he's with the uh, Freedom of Information Council here in Iowa, and we're going to talk about the, um, the lack of transparency at the administrative level and how that's affecting, uh, well, uh, several different issues. We'll, we'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. I'm not 
the guy who cared about love I'm not the guy who cared about fortunes and such Never cared much, oh look at me now I never knew the technique of kissing I never knew the thrill I could get from your touch Never cared much, oh look at me now Better than Casanova at his best With a new heart and a brand new start I'm so proud I'm busting Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host here, broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America, on Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM. Thanks to the stations around the country that rebroadcast this program. All right, so um, help me welcome to the studio Randy Evans, the former editorial Director, uh, editor, how do we say that? Editor of the editorial page of the Des Moines Register. That's correct. Now retired, unleashed. Semi retired, unleashed. That's right. <laughs> unleashed and, and writing columns uh, uh, once a week, I believe. Uh, the, the column is written weekly, and you could spell that two different ways depending on your W E A K L Y. Okay, a little self deprecation humor there. Good. So, um, we, maybe we'll have time to talk about more than one thing, but what I want to start with is this, um, and for folks who may be outside of Iowa listening to the show, this may be a little bit of an inside baseball thing going on here, but it comes down to the issue of transparency in government, which is a growing problem among governments at all levels across the country. But here in Iowa, we've got a governor who has been very uh, slow to divulge information about why she fired the head of the Iowa Finance Authority. David Jameson. And uh, it took you and some other folks, the Associated Press, really hitting hard to get her finally to disclose information that really should have been there right at the outset. The uh, candidates for public office, it doesn't matter what state you're in, whether you're talking <clears throat> local government, state government, or federal government, all talk about the importance of transparency. But once uh, officials get into office, transparency becomes something that is uh, a bother, and uh, and they would just as soon avoid it uh, whenever possible. And think, we've seen that in, in this case. Do you think that's a bipartisan problem, or is it worse among one party or the other? I see it with with all parties. Uh, there may be... By know, all, certain, you mean both. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, it may be some are more skillful practitioners of it. <laughs> Yeah, and, and right now Governor Reynolds seems to be a very skillful practitioner, also she's losing that battle because piece at a time she's having to tell what happened. Uh, I mean, originally she said that, well, yeah, I had to fire Jameson because of sexual harassment, but I'm not going to say anything because I want to protect the victim. Yeah, it's the, uh, uh, the troublesome part from the perspective of the Iowa Freedom of Information Council is that uh, this has been a... Uh, an explanation we've heard time and again in the past uh, from uh, other officials, particularly uh, Governor Reynolds's predecessor, uh, Governor Terry Branstad, where he often talked about wanting to tell the public why some official had been demoted or fired, but he always insisted that the law didn't let him. Right. Last year, right. the legislature specifically wrote <clears throat> into the, the law uh, a requirement that the documented reasons and rationale for the demotion, termination, or resignation in lieu of termination of a government official, employee, uh, had to be disclosed. Mm. Uh, 
Governor Reynolds <clears throat> seemed to think and offered a variety of explanations of why that didn't apply right. in this instance. And again, then she backed she backed away from that and yeah. has has shared information. But um, <clears throat> you know what? Why? 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 I mean, she and she and uh, David Jameson have been really close friends for a long time. Yes. And uh, so, you know, some the, there's a lot of speculation as to why she, you know, originally tried to, you know, kind of sweep the, sweep it all under the rug really fast. What, what's your what's your sense of that? What what is your impression as to why? Well, I think that uh, you know there is a uh, uh, an element of embarrassment by this. Uh, you know, if you are a new governor uh, serving your first. Uh, term in office and you're up for re-election in the fall, you don't like the spotlight shining on your administration. Uh, it's embarrassing because she was critical of uh, uh, the Iowa Senate Republicans in their own uh, sexual well, harassment. Well, not, not very critical. Well, <laughs> very minimally critical. I'd but but she, she also uh, uh, spoke <clears throat> out that uh, uh, the Senate majority leader needed to be more forthcoming about an internal investigation and making it available to the public. So it's ironic that, uh, you know, in this instance, uh, it was uh, it was being kept secret. How is it that the party of family values is having all these problems? I mean, not just Donald Trump's uh, picadillos, but uh, here in Iowa, the, um, the the Senate Majority Leader gone because of his uh, um, his involvement with a with a female lobbyist. Uh, uh, Governor Reynolds under increased uh, pressure because of the way she's handled a sexual harassment claim. H- how is it that the party of family values is, finds itself in this position? Well, and I, you know, the the how is is difficult to answer. The <clears throat> the from my vantage point, the solution is uh, uh, more uh, public accountability, more public access, more public awareness of what's going on, and that's what was troubling in in the Iowa Finance Authority case was because the governor was quick to say that the problem is over with, I acted decisively, uh, but as we saw later during the drip, drip, drip of, <laughs> of uh, records being made available, uh, it was uh, anything but uh, over with. You know, the, uh, the victim uh, wrote to the governor about how top administrators beyond Director Jameson were aware of what was going on and mm-hmm. and did nothing. So how how does Governor Reynolds' close friendship with Dave Jamison play into this? Because they were they were very close, and and the chatter now is that well they were involved somehow relationally, uh, even though they're both you know married. I believe I know Kim Reynolds is, and so there's there's some talk about that that's playing into this, and. Uh, and that that may be one reason why Reynolds has been so hesitant to be forthcoming about details. I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know how much uh, of her friendship with uh, Mr. Jameson is a factor. Uh, I don't know whether that's a, a bigger element than uh, just not wanting the uh, uh, the spotlight on a shortcoming uh, with her administration. Uh, Mr. Jameson was appointed by Governor Branstad when uh, Kim Reynolds was the lieutenant governor. Uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, I think the, the citizens of Iowa deserve to know how extensive this problem is right. uh, and why 
sexual harassment training has not been effective. And the the other angle, I mean, there's there's so many different uh, pieces of this puzzle. The other the other angle is that that uh, Jameson uh, has well was able to basically move the uh, authorize the moving of the uh, Iowa Finance Authority's headquarters at a tremendous cost with lots of information that is now turning out to be inaccurate and even even outright false. That's a whole other conversation, though. But, you know, I, I just see there's a real potential for Reynolds to be in hot water uh, in the in the next uh, five or six months leading up to the election over this. Well, and, and I think that, uh, you know, it's like taking a Band-Aid off. Do you want to just kind of pull it off, you know, uh, a couple of millimeters at a time, or do you just want oh, to get it out of the way? That's a better better strategy, both in terms of Band-Aids and politics. That's right. Yeah. Uh, do, you, uh, do you have time to stick around and talk about Wells sure. Fargo? Wells Fargo has come under a lot of heat lately. But and not enough. No, well, not enough, according to Randy. Uh, and um, some of that heat has been because of people like me who don't like them financing pipelines or being the, the bank of the NRA or financing private prisons. But they've or, got a, uh, payday lenders. Payday lenders. But they've got a lot of flack just for doing things just the way they've done business. And with this their, is with their customers. Yeah, uh, I mean that's the the troubling fake part. accounts, um, fake auto accounts. insurance people didn't need. Uh, it's you know the the allegations you know certainly show that uh, uh, Wells Fargo executives were intent on you know milking those customers like dairy cattle, mm-hmm. uh, and you know people bring their money to a bank thinking it's going to be taken care of. Right. They don't expect that they're going to be uh, mistreated yeah. by the bank. And so Wells Fargo got a $1 billion One fine. Billion. Is, that a, is that just a slap on the wrist when your company is big as Wells Fargo? Uh, when, you, when you see what it's going, the effect it's going to have on their quarterly earnings, which uh, you know, I think it would be fair to say would be negligible. Uh, and you know, I think one of the issues is that uh, if you don't have – tough oversight uh, by government uh, of their uh, business practices, the the poor consumer is is helpless otherwise. Yeah. Now, you know, there are a lot of folks who are pushing back against Wells Fargo, not just the, uh, not just the uh, Federal Reserve uh, <laughs> uh, and other elements of the federal government, but you've got, um, you've got the teachers union that have pulled out uh, pulled pulled their you know their financial relationship away, and that's over the um, primarily over the association that Wells Fargo has with the NRA. You've got the um, the uh, a, a group of nuns in Philadelphia. That may not sound like a big deal, but they've got a lot of money, and it's invested with Wells Fargo, and they're talking about bailing out. Um, well, and the symbolism, if you know, if you're losing the the Catholic nuns, yeah, there's, uh, there's only one way to go. It's, it's down, and, and yeah. you know where you're going to end up. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, if well, what will it take? I mean, right now, Wells Fargo may have come. They they have, they, they may have been wrist slapped enough by the federal government that they'll clean up their act when it comes to auto insurance and and how they how they treat their customers. But what about these investments? Uh, you know, what what will it take to get them to change their portfolio so they aren't funding climate change? And the theft of farmland through eminent domain, and the NRA, and private prisons, and payday loans. Do you, do you think there's enough momentum now where we might see, I think, you it, know, a new direction? I think it's going to uh, take consumers 
bringing their voices together. Uh, you've got uh, examples in the past where consumers have been able to marshal their uh, little cloud into a much bigger now Give cloud. us an example. Uh, well, you look what happened uh, uh, you know, with uh, South Africa. Oh, yeah, and, apartheid, uh, sure. And apartheid and, uh, and corporations investing yeah. in apartheid. And, uh, uh, <clears throat> but it, it takes time. Yeah, divestment made a big difference in how, di- but how apartheid that, played out. But I uh, think the blunder that Wells Fargo made is that they have now gotten a lot of people uh, paying attention to their business practices who wouldn't right. have been paying attention before. Right. Well, and there's more and more people are paying attention to a lot of the big banks. I mean, since 2008, uh, they've they've come under increased scrutiny, even though they've gotten huge bailouts. Uh, you know, but they've um, it's also been been clear that uh, you know a lot of these big banks are financing things that a lot of people don't believe in. Yeah, it's it's invisible in many respects. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll see again. Randy Evans, uh, thanks for joining us. Any any last words about uh, about uh, your column? You want to tell us a bit about um, you know how people can read your column? Uh, well, it's uh, if you the I write it for the home newspaper where I started when I was a high school kid, and if you go to B Demo. B is in boy, D is in dog, E M O dot com. That's a Bloomfield, right? Bloomfield, Bloomfield Democrat. Democrat. Right. Uh, it is online there. Great. Well, good. Randy, thanks for joining us. And, folks, my uh, pleasure, Ed. Uh, for those listening on our community owned stations, we'll be back with some additional conversation in a short time. But if you're listening on, on the dial or online to the live program, again, we air every Monday at 11, 11 o'clock Central Time live at either La Reina, 1260 a.m. FM and also, again, on the Fallon Forum website. That's fallonforum.com slash listen. back, folks. Uh, Ed Fallon with you here on the Fallon Forum. So uh, Donald Trump spoke at the uh, National Rifle Association's annual conference in Dallas last week, and um, he uh, made it clear that he's a big supporter of the Second Amendment. And you know what? That's um, that's, a, that's kind of a non-argument because a lot of us believe that folks have a right to own weapons to protect themselves or for hunting so it's maybe it's more of an interpretation of the Second Amendment that's uh, in, that's the uh, focus of the conversation. But again, I know I understand why Trump says that, and why others say that. But the um, he made it clear that you know that as long as he was president, there will never be uh, a quote you know attack on the Second Amendment. Uh, I thought it was interesting that he dismissed calls to ban guns because they wouldn't reduce terrorism or gun deaths. Because terrorists are now using cars and trucks to kill people. So he said, let's ban all cars, trucks, and vans. Oh, he says, all, I think he said all trucks and vans, maybe cars as well. 
you know, so he's making light of something that um, that any reasonable person would uh, you would understand that you know it's not it's not the same thing. You know, I, again, <laughs> there are all sorts of ways of um, of committing an act of terror, or to commit an act of violence, or you know, or or you know, the, the bottom line is there's not a lot of ways of um, committing a mass you know, a mass murder, uh, it, it's going to take a gun. And reasonable people, I think, can see that. If you look at all the incidents that have occurred here and a few in other countries, they involve guns. And they involve primarily guns that, uh, that are not the kind that you would use to protect yourself or for hunting. So let's, um, let's put that conversation behind us, Mr. President, if you please. Um, all right, so... Uh, while the president was defending the NRA, he uh, was apparently continuing to ignore climate science. Uh, we reached another milestone last week, a milestone as measured by the uh, Scripps Institute of Oceanography. They're located, uh, well, they, they, me they measure uh, CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere in Hawaii at the... Uh, Mauna Loa Observatory, and this is a um, this is a very credible entity that have been around for a long time. Have been measuring CO two concentrations for I want to say since 1958. And uh, you know, there's an organization called 350.org, and they're called that because 350 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere is a great target that we need to get back to. And understand that that's even that's fifty that's fifty parts per million higher than the atmosphere has contained for millions of years, sorry thousands of years, maybe, maybe eight hundred thousand years, so nearly a million years. We've seen three hundred parts per million. The the you know the um, the ambitious organization says we need to get back down to three fifty, even as we are now at 410. When the Great March for Climate Action went across the country, I think that was about the time when we hit 400. And yet we continue to see it go up higher and higher and higher. This is not sustainable. It's not good news. Yeah, so where it goes from here, it's uh, hard to know. But uh, there's only one direction uh, in recent times. And given our continued consumption of fossil fuel, it's going to keep going that direction. All right, so, uh, you know, there are more and more folks are saying that we need to grow our food differently if we're going to uh, cut the carbon emissions from agriculture. And I subscribe to that. I don't believe that that means we've all got to be vegans. I think there are plenty of ways of growing food that, uh, and meat even that don't require, um, uh, that don't involve as much carbon emissions. But let me take a second to look at the, um, the vegetable side of the dietary equation because we had a scare last week where 84 people in 19 different states got sick because of uh, E. coli bacteria discovered on romaine lettuce. Now, the bulk of romaine lettuce served in this country comes from the Yuma region of Arizona, a region I'm a little familiar with because we walked through there back in 2014 on the Great March for Climate Action. So the... Um, Again, that lettuce is sold all over the country. 
And uh, when it was discovered that that lettuce was infected by E. coli, it was replaced. <laughs> it was replaced by iceberg lettuce, which uh, I'm sorry, iceberg is not. It's, it's marginally a food group, all right, or, or marginally even a food item. Iceberg lettuce, come on. Uh, there's nothing there of any value nutritionally. So replacing romaine with that doesn't say a lot for romaine. It says even less for iceberg. But the, um, the solution here is to not get your lettuce from Yuma or from any industrial source. Get it local. And if you can't, if you can't use lettuce in the, um, <laughs> you know, if you, if, you, if you really, really need lettuce or something like lettuce, in the wintertime, I mean, I, I tend to just not eat salads in the winter. But if you really need it, grow some sprouts. Or there, there are local places, more and more local places, that are trying to grow lettuce and spinach and baby greens and arugula or even arugula in greenhouses. Get some of that stuff. You don't need to get your E. coli tainted lettuce from Yuma, Arizona. All right, so one more thing on the subject of food. Uh, 18 tons of ground beef were recalled. Why? It wasn't, it wasn't poisoned with E. coli. It was poisoned with plastic. Yes, plastic bits in your ground beef. 35,000 pounds of it uh, sold in Kroger grocery stores in North Carolina, Virginia, Indiana, Illinois, also in Food for Less stores and JC stores across the Midwest. Okay, so the solution here, yeah, you guessed it. Don't buy your beef or your meat from an industrial source. Get it from a local farmer that you believe in who raises it sustainably. We'll be back in a minute, folks, on the Fallon Forum. I remember you. You're the one who made my dreams come true. Just a few kisses ago. I remember you, you're the one who said I love you too, and I do, didn't you know, and I remember too a distant bell, and stars that fell like rain out of the blue. My life is through And the angels ask me to recall The thrill of them all Then I shall tell them I remember you Like rain out of 